Well, are you ever in a restaurant or a cafe and there's a display case with all sorts of treats in it? Maybe you've got a sweet tooth and you see the double chocolate gato and it looks very good. You think, I'll have a slice of that, please. And when it arrives at your table, you begin to dig in, but you find it doesn't quite taste that good. It's actually a bit bland. You realize that it looked much better than it actually tastes and it leaves you a bit disappointed and unsatisfied. You wish you'd chosen something else. And maybe that's just an example of all sorts of dissatisfaction in your life because there's a general sense of, of feeling unsatisfied in every sort, all sorts of aspects of your life. Sometimes you imagine, well, if you had made different choices, then you wouldn't be so disappointed. If you just had a bit more of an income or a bit more of a pension, that that would bring you the satisfaction that you're looking for. And yet we have numerous examples of even the the rich and famous being unsatisfied. I don't know if you saw in the news, it was about a month or maybe two months ago now, uh, of the death of the actor Matthew Perry, aged 54. He was one of the stars of the TV hit series Friends uh, on our TVs for so many years. And apparently at the height of its popularity, the actors were receiving $1 million an episode. It's a good job if you can get it. Uh, Well, when I was reading the news about uh, Perry's death, I came across this from an interview from his autobiography, which was entitled Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. Listen to what he said. This is Matthew Perry. Nobody wanted to be famous more than me. I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25. It was the second year of Friends, and eight months into it, I realized the American dream is not making me happy, not filling the holes in my life. Well, there's maybe no one here this evening who's rich and famous, Uh, a celebrity in Connor. I don't know if there's any celebrities around Connor. Maybe Philip's the most famous man in Connor. I don't know. But maybe you're sitting here and maybe not to that level, but there is a sense of feeling unsatisfied with life for you at the minute. And that dissatisfaction can carry over into our experience of church. Maybe when you first came to faith, you came to church full of enthusiasm and eagerness and expectation. You wanted to hear what God's Word said, what it meant, how it related to your life. But over time, you've become unsatisfied. Maybe as you look around, again, I've only been around with you for the last year, year and a half, two years since I've been coming here. Uh, And maybe there used to be a lot more people here on a Sunday evening. Maybe on Sunday mornings, there used to be a lot more people. And so numbers have declined and you look around and you sort of think is this it? What does the future hold? And that can even carry over, not just to how we think about church, but even how we think about Jesus. Again, in early days of faith in Christ, you were so enthused, but as time has gone on, well, you thought being a Christian would have brought more. Your experience has been tinged with disappointment, and in the words of the Rolling Stones, you think, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, as we turn to the prophet, uh, the Old Testament prophet Haggai, we'll see that this very experience of dissatisfaction and disappointment is very much central to what's going on in Haggai 1 for God's people. But before launching into the details of these verses, we have to, in a sense, orientate ourselves, moving from 2023 back into uh, the history and the time of of Haggai. It was my mother's birthday uh, just this past week. 
I took her out to the rabbit uh, for, for lunch. Very nice festive meal there. If you have a chance, uh, I would recommend that. It was very good. Uh, at a previous birthday, it must be 10 or 15 years ago, it might have been a, a significant one because I don't know why I would have done more than just a meal at the rabbit. I took my mum to Madrid for a couple of days. Um, hopefully there's no children here thinking of their mother's birthdays coming up now and that they're going to be, uh, be uh, thinking there, there needs to be a lot more done for it. But anyway, we went to Madrid and this was out in the days before I actually had a smartphone. And uh, I remember we were exploring various parts of the city and we were staying somewhere in the center of the city. And I remember thinking, well, where are we? I either had a little map or else on my non-smartphone I had taken a picture of a map. And I remember looking, thinking, okay, if we find this main road, then we'll be on the right road and we'll, we'll get back to where we need to go. So eventually came onto the road, turned onto it and started heading up this road, thinking this is gonna head right back into the city center to where we're staying. Kept walking and walking and walking. It seemed like we were walking for a couple of miles and things seemed to be coming less uh, civilized and more remote the further we were walking. And, and then finally realized that we were on the right road but heading in the wrong direction. Well, that is really what we need to avoid as we come to Haggai. When it comes to Haggai, we need to orientate ourselves, making sure we're on the right road in terms of understanding, but as well as that, traveling in the right direction in terms of application. We don't want to come away with the wrong idea. As I say, it's a very different time to us and customs are different. So I want to really do three things this evening. First, I want to walk us through the passage. Uh, maybe I'll be the tour guide for walking. I'll not take you to Madrid and walk you around Madrid. Uh, you've already lost confidence in my abilities for that. But uh, as we walk through this passage, firstly, we'll take a note of some of the details and what they might be saying. Uh, and then second, we will look at how not to apply this to us today, two, mis two, two misapplications that we might uh, make uh, where we might go wrong. And then finally, we'll finish by considering how we might understand the clear relevance this book continues to have for us in our time and the significant message that God through Haggai has for us. We'll see how it points to Jesus and we'll see how it points to the church. So let's uh, firstly then walk through the passage. Uh, verse 1, uh, it will be really helpful if you have your Bible open. There's a few other places we need to go in Scripture to, to, to in a sense, uh, fill in the detail. But verse 1, uh, we, we begin with, with various dates. Now, uh, you're reading our second year of Darius, sixth month, first day of the month, and in some ways that's maybe over your head or you think, what's significant about that? Uh, and yet, I imagine if you were to uh, go to Madrid, say, or go to Mumbai and tell someone it's the 12th of July, they would look at you and say, so what's, what's the big deal with that? But of course, we know in Northern Ireland it's a significant uh, date. Well, dates, uh, Haggai has a lot to say about dates, and uh, he mentions Darius, the king. This would be the king of Persia. Uh, I actually have on the screen, hopefully, you'll see, I think sometimes with dates, we can, well, I don't know if you'll be able to make that out. You might be able to make it out. You can make it out better there than I can make it out better here. Um, so you can see here a bit of a timeline. Um, you can see in the middle there the the Bible books that deal with uh, the timeline, you can see the dates along the bottom. Those are before, years before Christ. Uh, and so the big significant date around that time was in 586 
years before Christ or BC, uh, and that was when the Babylonian Empire came in and basically destroyed Jerusalem uh, and took God's people away into captivity. Uh, people like uh, Daniel w- w- was taken away, uh, and there were various, uh, yeah, there, there are various books there that deal with that, and you can see along the top there who was in charge in terms of uh, on the world stage at that time. Um, maybe we'll go to the next slide, and it gives maybe the dates in, in a better way, and I'll be able to see it looking this way as well. So, um, in terms of dates, the reason Haggai is so concerned with dates, as is Zechariah, who's around the same time, is because uh, when God's people went into exile, when Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, very much in mind for people were the words of Jeremiah in chapter 25, where there was a promise for a 70-year uh, exile. And so, 70 years, I'll just turn there and find, I should have marked, I thought I had marked all these in my Bible. Yes, so 70 years, uh, Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12 says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans. So there's this promise for 70 years, uh, but scholars are a little bit confused as to, well, when do the 70 years actually start and when do they actually end? Uh, because uh, the, the, the end point of the promise was that when the Babylonians were defeated, which actually was 539 BC, as you see up there, where Persia comes in under Cyrus uh, and conquers Babylon. So you could sort of think, well, that's the end point when Babylon is no more and 70 years is up. But if you go back 70 years before that, it's 609 BC. And at that point, Jerusalem still stood. And so in a sense, the start point doesn't quite line up If we then take it uh, in the other direction from 586 and we move forward uh, to 70 years, that actually brings us down to 516 BC at the very bottom there where you can see temple uh, construction is completed. Uh, But the point we're at at the beginning of Haggai here is before that. It's a few years before that. Uh, And what's happened, you read about this in Ezra, there's there's lots of prophets and then there's uh, Ezra is in the mix here as well. Uh, In Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel had come back with the first wave of returnees. Uh, Zerubbabel, who's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, so he is a a son of David. Um, For whatever reason, he was appointed uh, to be governor and brought back. Cyrus didn't know God's divine intentions, and yet he came back as the, the governor who's mentioned a couple of times there in Haggai 1. So he was charged with bringing these these people back. He was given actually support by Cyrus to do that. Uh, And then they began building work on the temple. But they didn't get too far before opposition uh, came their way. And again, that's opposition you can read about in Ezra. Uh, The rebuilding was underway. You can see there it was started in 536. uh, And it only got two years before we read a couple of verses in Ezra 4 where it says, Then the people of the, Israel, of, of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they got going with doing their building work, but then uh, it stopped because of opposition. 
And in many ways, when we think uh, about how this relates to us, we can, as a starting point, think, well, Haggai 1 is a message which comes to a discouraged and demoralized people who end up using their circumstances as an excuse for disobedience to God. And that is very much the case. People have thought, well, it's too hard. We're going to stop uh, doing this work. But Haggai comes on the scene then. Uh, Haggai 1, uh, we have the time, the date, we have the, the characters involved, Darius, who's the, who actually was known at the time as the king of kings, uh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And actually, this book is not really concerned with him. It's almost as soon as he's mentioned, that's nearly the end of his role. He's really just mentioned to sort of show where Haggai fits in, his, in time and space. Uh, what really matters is the word of the Lord that came by the hand of Haggai. Uh, he came, and there's this concern with dates. Uh, sort of the other thing as well as the year, there's the specific time of the year that's mentioned. It's the second year of Darius the king who's took on, his reign has settled things down after turmoil before he arrived, and we're in the sixth month. Now, don't think of that as June because it was a different calendar then, and the Jewish calendar starts with Passover, which would have been around March time. And so the sixth month is actually, well, scholars actually believe that this very date is the 29th of August, uh, the 29th of August, uh, 520 BC, which is very specific, um, maybe too specific. But uh, what it really is, is, is a time of harvest. This is the time of the year that's harvest. If it's the end of August, start of September, and maybe some here can relate to that. Um, we're, we're well beyond harvest now, the gathering in of crops, the gathering in of whatever gets gathered in. Uh, maybe I know there's some around here with farming backgrounds. Well, this is the sort of harvest time. And we're told that it's the first day of the month, which would have actually been a, a, a new moon festival. Uh, this was almost like an extra Sabbath. And in some ways, that explains why all these people were gathered in Jerusalem, the people who lived in the sort of villages in and around Jerusalem. I don't know how we would relate. It's a bit like when there's a bank holiday, everyone heads up to the north coast and Port's Church, the place to be. Um, you have everyone gathering because this is the day off and they all gather there. Well, in, in the people of Haggai's time on the, on, the, on the new moon festival, the first day of the month, the people from the surrounding villages and the areas around Jerusalem, they gathered in. And so in a sense, this is why there's a congregation for Haggai to speak to along with uh, the governor and the priest. And it's also then that time where people would have been asking, well, how good was your harvest? Was it a good harvest this year? You know, did you get plenty of crops in? How full are your barns? So this would have been the time that people would have been asking these sorts of questions. And we'll come to that as we move through uh, the passage. And uh, we've already looked at those, uh, at those dates there. So we can see uh, time has passed, 16 years. Uh, nothing's been happening. And then as we look down, we see... Uh, the reason for this uh, it says, thus says the Lord, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people haven't refused to do it. They haven't said we are definitely not building that. It's too difficult. It's too, there's too much trouble. There's too much opposition. We're not going to do it. They're just saying not yet. They're just saying not yet. I wonder if you heard that when, when you ask someone to do something, especially if you're a parent. And you say, could you do this? Could you come for your dinner? Your dinner's ready. I'll be there in a minute. Maybe you're here. Maybe a child's watching a program or playing a, a video game or something. 
And uh, I suppose we're trying to teach our children as well that delayed obedience is disobedience. Um, and maybe you've had that where it's not yet, not just in a minute, I'll come. They're saying, look, we want to just carry on what we're doing. Things are hard if we try this. We will do it at some point when the circumstances are right, but just not yet. But this doesn't fly with Haggai. This doesn't fly with the Lord. And they say the time has not yet come, but then verse 3, again, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So a question comes to the people then, and in many ways, God's word questions us every time we hear it and asks certain questions of us. But there's an interesting detail in there where it talks about paneled houses. Paneled is a bit of an unusual word in the Old Testament. It literally means covered, but uh, we, I suppose every house would have to be covered really, you know, a sort of a, a roof. So it's not, you know, it literally means covered, but it's probably not talking about a roof because every house would have a roof. And maybe it is along the lines of nice wood paneling. It seems to be the end thing. Sometimes you go into a house of a friend who just did up the house and got nice painted wood panels. And of course, in meeting houses, there's lovely wood paneling uh, around the place. So we might say, well, it's, this means like lavish houses or luxury houses, but there's actually more to it even than that. It's not Haggai could have just said, is it a time for you to dwell in your, in your big houses or your lavish houses? No, he uses this specific word, paneled. I said it's, it's, it's an unusual word. It's only mentioned a few times. And actually, the other place it's mentioned is in relation to Solomon's temple and Solomon's palace in the history books. And that's significant because Haggai's wanting us to draw the connection then to, hold on a minute, you're saying you don't have uh, what's needed. It's not the right time uh, to build the house of the Lord, but you actually have the materials that are used in the house of the Lord, but instead you've put them into your own houses, your paneled houses. If you look that up, you'll see that the same word is used uh, in relation to Solomon's uh, temple, Solomon's palace. So, uh, this is the excuse they make, and yet it doesn't wash. Then, uh, as we move through verse uh, 5, there's this consider your ways, which appears again in verse 7. And, and again, God's word, especially through the prophets, call, calls God's people always to consider their ways. Uh, and not just their ways, but also the impact of their ways on their lives and on what's happening. I mentioned there, this is the time of harvest in the sixth month. Uh, and so, you see then verse 6 gives us, in a sense, the results of their harvest they're reflecting, and well, look how good, Haggai's saying, how good's your harvest been this year? Uh, and we have the answers. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. Uh, in other words, it's actually you drink, but you never have enough to, to feel the effects of it. You drink, but you don't have enough for a, for a proper party. Uh, you, you clothe yourselves, but you're not actually warm. And then there's this uh, wonderful image of someone who earning, earns their wages and puts them into a bag with holes. People didn't have pockets in their garments those days, so they put their wages in a bag, and yet the bag has holes, and they just slip on through. Various images there, but all of them really point to dissatisfaction. People having something, but just not enough to be satisfied, whether it's food or drink or clothes or wages. They've got something, 
but there's dissatisfaction with their lot, with what they've uh, got. And, and, and Haggai causes, t- calls on them to reflect on the causes of this. Uh, he says, consider your ways, verse 7, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it. Uh, he's basically saying, look, if you want to have proper harvest, just go up and do what you're supposed to do. You were supposed to come back 16 years ago and get my house built instead of building your own paneled houses. And look, this is the reason why your harvest hasn't been good. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. The people in their day, they didn't have Mick Jagger, but they would have been saying, we can't get no satisfaction. The Lord says, I blew it away. And it's very clear, verse 9, the reason, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. And then it goes on, verse 10 and 11 explains again why there's not been harvest, why there's not been food, why there's so little. The heavens have not given their due and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land. God is behind this. They should not be in any doubt. This is not just some uh, natural consequences or, or natural causes. This is God behind this. And in verse 12 onwards to the end, we actually see how God's people respond to Haggai's message. But that's to trace a few details. We could spend more on that. It's a long enough passage. But I said the second thing I wanted to do was to to help us see two misapplications of this, two wrong uh, roads to travel down. And the first is this, and I'm sort of glad this evening that um, Philip hasn't invited me along because you're uh, in Connor embarking on some new building project. Uh, you're maybe uh, making this, these, these pews even more uh, lavish or getting uh, the, the wood all painted and there's, there's, a, there's a new building project and there's a new building fund that has been started. Uh, and oh, here, Ben, could you, could you sort of G people up to maybe give a little bit more money uh, to support the building fund? I'm glad that's not the case. <laughs> Uh, Philip has got more knowledge of Scripture than me, no doubt, and that is not what's going on here. But we might be inclined to think that. It seems like an easy connection to make. You know, build the house of the Lord. We just need to build up the house of the Lord. And well, here's a meeting house. Let's build up the house of the Lord today. And yet, as we know, uh, we need to take a couple of steps forward to see how this applies to us today. So we don't think house of the Lord equals church building today. No, we've got that passage from John that tells us about the temple, uh, that uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. The, the Jews were thinking, well, hold on, this was Herod's temple. He had, he had done some work on this temple and it had taken 46 years. And now Jesus is talking about knocking it down and rebuilding it in three days. What's he talking about? Well, if we sort of take a step back and think, what is the temple all about? What, at its core, what is the temple that we read of first as the tabernacle in the book of Exodus? And there's very specific, intricate details that were given to Moses as to how to build the tabernacle, which then under Solomon would become the temple. And this was central to life for the Israelite in the Old Testament. But at its core, what it was, was God's promise to dwell with His people his presence being made known in the middle of his people. Uh, As the Israelites traveled through the wilderness, uh, every time they stopped to camp, the tabernacle was in the middle, and the tribes, the 12 tribes, were all uh, positioned around. And so, the sense was that God's presence was in the midst of his people. And so, that's what the temple, when you boil it down, that's what it was about 
God's presence with his people, God dwelling in the midst of his people. But that's not the case today for us as Christians because we're told there that very passage in John that Jesus was not talking about the bricks and whatever the temple was made out of then. I was about to say bricks and mortar, that's to use our uh, language. Whatever the, the temple then was not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his own body, his own body. And John's gospel has already told us in chapter one that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us or who tabernacled among us. And we were just singing about sing we the song of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus comes into the midst and Jesus, and specifically in John 2, it's the body, his body that is talked about as God's presence, as God's dwelling with his people. And of course, he did dwell here on this planet for 30 years or so. But then as we move in another step forward into the church, in the age of the church, beyond the gospels, Paul takes up that language of the body of Christ. And of course, he's talking about the church, one body, many parts. And so, the church today is, is God's dwelling with His people, is God present in the midst of His people. And again, Peter talks about living stones. It's hard for us, I think, in Northern Ireland, a lot of the time we do think of church and we've We've lost the sort of old, maybe it's seen as old school to talk about the meeting house and we talk about church, but we have to be very clear that the church is God's gathered assembly of people. It's the assembled uh, gathering for worship. And so that's what the church is. And so if we're going to, to, to springboard from Haggai, uh, we need to not springboard into support, put more money in the building fund, but actually how can we better be involved in the work of building up the church? And of course, that will be things like uh, taking on board Philip's announcements to go out and to invite others to come along to a carl service to hear the gospel and to become living stones themselves. That will be, actually will involve uh, giving money to uh, whatever outreach endeavors might be needed. Maybe there is some certain building things at, at, at some time. There's a need to, we want to do this. We want to start this ministry. We want to start this uh, thing going on and we need to pay for it in some shape or form. And so it does involve money, but it's bearing in mind that it's, it's the church that's being built up. We want to see more people added to the church. And it's also uh, the fellowship in the church, seeing the church is, is so important that we're not just here as individuals, you know, listening to, to me or to Philip up at the front, but actually we're here as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to see the church built up in unity, in partnership, gospel partnership, uh, and so that others can be added to the number as well. So that's what we want, want to seek in terms of building up the house of the Lord. That applies to us as part of the body of Christ that is God's dwelling in this world. The second misapplication we might make as we come to this passage is we might think, well, look what happens here with the people. They didn't have a good harvest. And God says, do what you're supposed to do, build up my house, and then you'll have a good harvest. And we might think, well, look, harvest wasn't too good for me this last year. And come to think of it, I wasn't attending church just as much during this past year, or I wasn't given as much in my free will offering, or I wasn't uh, spending as much time with, with others in the church. And we might think, look, if I want a good harvest next year, if I want to have a better income next year, 
I need to just be a bit more committed in the church. I need to pray a bit more for help. I need to take things a little bit more seriously, and then God's going to bless me uh, materially. That's a mistake we can make, and, and it's a mistake for, for two reasons. The first is we're actually treating God as a, as a means to an end rather than the end in Himself. He is the one who calls us to find all our sufficiency in Him, and instead, if we take that misapplication, it's the sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel uh, that is uh, common in various parts of the world where we think, if I give to God, well, He's going to give more back to me. You know, I'll give some money, but He's going to return that tenfold as part of a false prosperity gospel. And we might be in danger of, of, of thinking that even in a subtle way. The other reason it's wrong is because things have changed with the coming of Christ to what's going on here. If you look at verse 10 and 11 there, again, where it says about the heavens withholding their dew, the earth withholding its produce, the drought, uh, these uh, things that happened uh, line up with Deuteronomy chapter 28, where there are covenant curses given uh, to God's people, where they're basically told, if you obey me, well, then you're going to be blessed, and here's how you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey me, you're going to be cursed, and here's how you're going to be cursed. And some of the very things that are listed in Deuteronomy 28 as curses for disobedience are these same things that Haggai refers to. One of the very specific ones for Haggai's time was exile, that eventually, if they kept on disobeying, God's people will be carried off into exile, and so that's already taken place at this point. But for us in the New Testament, we are not subject to those same uh, curses because with the coming of Christ, Christ came and He obeyed perfectly, perfect personal obedience, and He deserved to be blessed in all things, and yet He took the curse, cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took the wrath of God. He suffered the curse that he did not deserve, so that there's this crossover, blessing, obedience, curse for disobedience, and yet those realities are crossed over with Christ. And so, what do we make of that? Well, it means that in Christ we actually are blessed. And I want to finish by referring to um, a guy you may not, may or may not have heard of. His name is Gresham Metchen. Uh, he was the uh, founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where I studied. Uh, he founded uh, a, mission, uh, a missionary organization as well. And just before he died, he died in 1937. He was quite young when he died. He was only in his uh, 30s when he died. And he dictated a final telegram at the time to his uh, colleague and friend, John Murray. And he said this, a short telegram. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. You may be thinking, what's that all about, active obedience of Christ? Well, when we think about Christ's obedience, there's a passive side to it, His giving Himself up, His enduring the cross, but there's also an active side to it. Uh, his, his, throughout His life, the things that He actively did uh, to secure our salvation, not just His receiving, passively, the actions of others, Pilate, the Jews, the Pharisees. And what Metchin meant by that was, I'll explain, 
uh, he went on to say that the covenant of works was a probation. If you think of Adam in the garden, Adam was given one command, don't eat from this tree. Uh, and then there's the sense in which if he hadn't have eaten from that tree, he would have been able to eat from the tree of life. He would have passed his probation and been able to eat from the tree of life. If he disobeyed, he was to have death. And of course, we know he did disobey and the penalty of death was inflicted on him, on Eve, and obviously we've inherited that as well. But then Christ, by his death on the cross, paid that penalty for those whom God had chosen. Well, that's well and good, Machen would say, but if that were all that Christ did for us, do you not see that we end up just back in the garden, in the same situation that Adam was in before he sinned? The penalty of his sinning would have been removed because it had been paid for by Christ, but for the full attainment of eternal life, that would have been then dependent on the perfect obedience to God's law. And so, Sometimes we think about uh, grace and we sort of talk about God's riches at Christ's expense or we talk about uh, grace's unmerited favor. But it's actually demerited in the sense of we don't actually start in a neutral position, we start in a negative position because of sin, because of Adam's sin, because of our sin. And in a sense, if Christ's blood pays for our sin, that in a sense just leaves us with a zero balance on our account and this maybe seems a bit technical this evening, but here's the relevance. I wonder if you're sitting here tonight and you're feeling dissatisfied and you're a Christian and you know that you're forgiven and you hear about forgiveness for sins, but in your heart of hearts, if you're honest with yourself, a lot of the time you think God doesn't like you. You think that it's almost begrudgingly that, yes, because of Jesus, you've got a way in, but God doesn't actually like you, that you're a failure to Him. Well, here's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. It's not just Christ's blood paying the penalty for our sin, but it's also Christ's act of obedience. His, as we saw in John again, His zeal for the house of the Lord. You see, as hard as we might, you might, I don't know who here is the most servant-hearted person in the congregation of Connor this evening, the person who's involved in anything and everything that's going on. Even that person, whoever that is here, probably if they're honest, they would say, well, look, I could probably do more. I could probably do more. No matter how hard we try as God's people, we never do enough. We're never uh, devoted and as zealous about the church as we might be. And yet Jesus, remember the disciples, zeal for your house will consume me. Throughout Christ's life, he was devoted to God. Remember the woman at the well? Uh, that He was asked, did he want food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish it. See, Jesus was zealous for God's glory. He was zealous for the building up of the house of the Lord. And that actually accounts for us today, this evening. That's, that, that his righteousness is credited to our account. And so actually this evening, I hope you leave here knowing that God doesn't just sort of let you in because he has to, because Jesus' blood has paid for you, but actually Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. So God actually delights in you here tonight if you are a Christian, if you're found in Christ. You don't need to be disheartened. Yes, we're called to serve, we're called to invest in the work of the building up of the church, 
And yet we do that as those who are in Christ, who share in every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's a few hymns, a lot of hymns dwell more on the, 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 the blood of Christ atoning for our sins, His passive obedience, and yet there are some which touch on it. Think of, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or that little one, King of Kings, Majesty, where it talks about, in royal robes, I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. You see, God looks at you this evening, if you're in Christ, and He sees Christ's righteousness clothing you. And so I hope you go home this evening knowing that Christ, or that God delights in you because you are in Christ. Yes, go home, uh, and this week, invite people to church, seek the building up of the church in whatever way you can, but you can do so not with that burden of guilt hanging over you, because Christ's blood has paid for it, and also not thinking that God doesn't like you because Christ's righteousness has been credited to your account, and God delights in you. Let's pray together.